Hey everybody, John Moe here. Before we dive into this latest episode, just wanted to let you know that it's your support that helps make this program possible. And a quick reminder that you can go to hilariousworld.org and click Give Now. If you donate at any amount before the end of December, we will send you the Hilarious World of Depression pill case. It's a little sliding top pill case. It's a lot of fun. If you donate at the $5 a month level, we will send you the Hilarious World of Depression mug. It is handsome and stately. It can hold tea and cocoa, whatever you want to drink. Just go to hilariousworld.org and click give now. Is depression funny? I think that everything terrible has the potential to be funny. Um, sometimes it's the only way to survive it, by laughing at it and making it smaller and more manageable. Doc says there's something wrong with me. I got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. On this program, I talk with notable, funny people who have had firsthand experience dealing with depression. I saw this on a blog I was reading. The author just got some new glasses. She says, I've gotten so used to the blurry that when things are in focus, they're almost too clear. Like I'm being shouted at by my eyes. And it struck me as a very good analogy because it's very similar to how I feel when I come out of a depression. Suddenly my tunnel vision fades and there's more sun. Things I couldn't concentrate on before are obvious. The things I ignored because they faded away during the darker times are suddenly clear and obvious and demanding my attention. And it's great, but also disorienting and wonderful and terrifying. That was written by this episode's guest. My name is Jenny Lawson, and I am in San Antonio, Texas at Texas Public Radio. And I am a writer and blogger and all-around misfit. Jenny Lawson is the New York Times number one best-selling author of the memoirs Let's Pretend This Never Happened and Furiously Happy and the author of the incredibly popular blog, theblogs.com. Hundreds of thousands of followers everywhere on social media. In her writing, Jenny is generally the protagonist, a woman in Texas trying to overcome obstacles. It's often very funny and often pretty moving. Anything I need to know before before we get started? Um, well, and I'll, I'll probably end up talking about it during uh, the actual thing, but I'm in the middle of a... Uh, depression. And when I am in the middle of a depression, it affects my words. And so you will see me sort of struggle sometimes. And I actually thought, maybe maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe we should postpone. And then I thought, you know what, if I'm going to do a podcast about mental illness, like maybe I should just be right up front about how sometimes I'm not always funny and don't always make sense. That's kind of Jenny Lawson in a nutshell. She is successful and she has faced challenges, anxiety, depression, chronic pain, but she talks about it anyway, often with a big dollop of humor. She grew up in West Texas. <laughs> Wall, Texas is um, this tiny town in rural Texas where nobody really knows it exists. Even if you live in Wall all your life, which I did, you still are kind of like, is this real? There's just nothing. It's it's cotton fields. It's not unusual to drive your tractor to school. It's um, just 
there's just nothing there. I think your father's penchant for taxidermy needs to be established as uh, as some sort of foundational uh, concept to to who you are. Yeah, my father was and still is a um, a taxidermist. And when I was a kid, he was a taxidermist sort of for fun. Um, you know, we often would not have meat to eat unless he killed something. So then, you know, you have this head left over and might as well do something with it. Um, and so he would taxidermy animals all the time. And he eventually left his job and decided this is what I'm going to do full time. And it led to a very strange childhood, um, although I didn't recognize at the time that it was strange. But later I realized that not everybody reaches into the freezer looking for pop-ups and instead pulls out a frozen rattlesnake, which was still alive when he threw it in there, by the way. And so is like frozen in a horrific, like, I'm going to kill you sort of way. It's, it's, it's disturbing. There's going to be a lot more taxidermy talk in this episode. I kind of have to spread it out, though. Jenny says depression didn't kick in until she was in her 20s, and she'd had a miscarriage. She had suicidal ideation, and she didn't recognize what she was going through as being depression. My um, personal problems typically are more anxiety. Like, I've had anxiety ever since I—it's my first memory. Uh, so— I've always dealt with that. And because anxiety to me is such a strong, continual monster, it was very easy to sort of set aside those periods of numbness and despair and just think, well, this is just this is just me coming down from an extreme period of anxiety. This is just exhaustion from that. And it wasn't until I was older that I realized that I had both, that I had anxiety and depression. And then when I was able to treat both of them, it got better. Well, actually, it got worse. But then it got better. And then it got worse. And then it, then it got better. <laughs> and then it got worse. And then it got... It's the human condition, basically. You, you say your first memory was of anxiety. What was that memory? I had this uh, box, this toy box that my grandfather had made for me and... We lived really close to a school. We lived out in the middle of a cotton field, and there was a school about a half a mile down. And I could stand out on um, at our front door, and I could see the kids. And I remember being so afraid of them. And I would pull everything out of the toy box, and I would get inside, and I would shut the lid. My mom just thought, well, she has... Um, she has some issues, like she's shy and um, she likes to be by herself. And also like we lived in, like there's four people in a house with one bathroom, you know, she wants privacy, I don't know. Um, and I really thought for a really long time, I was like, well, it just, this, this must be what it feels like to be shy, to be sick every single holiday, every single birthday, to be like unable to even get out of bed because you are so physically ill from the worry to, you know, cry constantly. And um, I just thought it was not that I was normal. I absolutely knew that there was something really wrong with me. There was no one like me. Um, but I just thought I must just be really weak and really painfully shy. And if I just keep pushing, I'll push past it. 
but that never happened. Jenny Lawson is aware of her disorders now and articulate in speaking about them. But knowing that you have a disease isn't the same as getting rid of it. Mental illness is still a part of her everyday life. She gave me an example of how anxiety was with her on the day of our interview. On my way here to the radio station, um, I thought, I need to get gas because what if I get lost on the way here and I end up at some place where gas doesn't exist anymore, which is ridiculous. But I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop and fill my, my tank up. But I already had like half the tank and I didn't want to um, get enough gas that it rolled over to this unlucky number that I have a problem with. So I'm like, oh, okay, I got to make sure that I take the gas out before it hits that unlucky number. But when I did, the, um, you know, the little lock that, so you don't have to hold onto the gas thing, that was still on. And so when I pulled out the gas thing, it was still like spraying out everywhere. So it sprayed all over my car and all over my shoes. And then as I'm driving, I'm thinking, oh, my car is going to set on fire because I'm like, I'm covered in gas and then, and it didn't, which was great, but then I got here and I smell a gas and I keep thinking, I bet this is how spontaneous combustion starts um, and this is what's going to happen to me, but at least I can stop worrying about how I'm going to die and um, that I can get cremated, which is great. But then I thought about the fact that the last lady that spontaneously combusted, there's this picture of her, like she has one perfectly formed foot that's totally not touched by the fire. And I'm like, that would suck because I haven't had a pedicure in years because it makes me nervous to have strangers judge how awful my feet are. And if that's the last thing that's there, that would super suck. And then I'm walking through the hall and I'm thinking, what if I spontaneously combust here in the radio station? Then I take everybody down with me and I bet I'm the only person here that is silently apologizing in my head to every single person that I pass. And I want to say like, maybe you should take a smoke break outside in case I spontaneously combust. But then I think like they're probably going to think that's a threat instead of a warning, and then I'll end up in jail. And I'm just trying to save people from spontaneous combustion. I mean, even as I was walking in here, this the, the Texas radio, Texas public radio, it's in the same uh, building as, it's in the, like the medical center. And as I'm walking in, I'm thinking, wait, what if this is a trap? What if this is some sort of an intervention? And the whole reason that I'm here is so that they can like institutionalize me because I'm crazy. And I'm walking in and I'm like, well, thank God I at least took a shower because it's really hard to get, you know, showers in the hospital. And then I'm like, but no, I'm, I'm doing okay. And then I think, oh, if I get up here, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm here to do, um, you know, my favorite podcast and I'm a number one New York Times bestselling author. And they're like, oh, that's a delusion. You realize that, right? And I'd be like, oh, that makes more sense, actually. That makes so much more sense. So, I mean, well, we arranged it so that you would be near a hospital uh, just because there's a burn <laughs> unit just, you know, so it was all... <laughs> It's one-stop shopping. We it worked it perfect. out with the guys at the gas station. There was a conference oh call. There was a webinar. Um, and it all worked out. <laughs> and now a few seconds of Rhett Miller playing guitar so we can all rest up from that anecdote. I hear a lot of anxiety. And I also hear um, depression creeping in in one of its favorite uh, disguises, which is imposter syndrome. How long have you been dealing with imposter syndrome? Forever. Um, even when I was in school and the you know tests would come back with reading and writing and they would be extremely high and I would be like, well, you've obviously confused me with someone else. Um, there was never 
a time when I felt like I got this or I deserve this. Um, even now, I still feel like at any moment, people are going to look around and be like, wait, did we like her? Why did we like, oh my God, she's the worst. And they will realize that I am not who they think that I am. They'll see me for the person that I see me as. Jenny's not an imposter. I don't think you are either, dear listener. By the way, it's just your brain playing a mean trick. She sells a lot of books now. She has a lot of fans, but it took a while to get to where she is. And there were stumbles. Jenny worked in offices. She worked in human resources for years. Eventually, she decided to give writing a real shot. I started blogging on, uh, oh gosh, I started blogging when my daughter was about four for the Houston Chronicle on a parenting blog because I just wanted an opportunity to write. And I kept getting in trouble over and over again for saying things that were maybe not appropriate. And so I started uh, the blog us a couple of years later. And I, I want to say that my first post was just me screaming the F word. Uh, and I was like, oh, it feels so good. Did you get in trouble with the newspaper for, for swearing or for? Yeah, but it was like light swearing. It was like ass, you know, or it was stuff where they were like, well, you can't say that on this is the, you know, this is Texas. It's, it's very conservative. <laughs> and they weren't mean. They were just like, and they couldn't fire me because I wasn't getting paid. They were just like, okay, maybe don't say this again. And also like, you're kind of, you're right on the edge. Can you not, you know? So I just finally was like, I'm just going to start my own. That was 10 years ago. Jenny wrote about herself, her family, the world, and she did it with the kind of irreverence many of us wish we could get away with in day-to-day -day life. Here's a post from not long ago. It's weird that kids will walk for miles just to see a dead body in a ravine when they could just walk into a funeral home and look at a bunch of them without all those flies and lack of air conditioning. Kids, right? Although maybe it's because kids always want to poke a body with a stick and funeral directors won't let a bunch of kids come in with sticks. That's why I always bring a cane. The blog was a hit, especially among readers of what are called mommy blogs, women at home with kids who are working incredibly hard and aren't getting enough grown-up contact and feel like screaming. The blogess understood them and let them laugh. She wondered where to go from there. I was at this writing conference and I thought, oh, maybe I'll write a book. And I went to this panel and there was this agent there and she was super fancy and from New York and she was like here's what you do here's what you don't do and there were so many rules and I was like fuck this so I left in the middle of it and went straight to the bar and just started drinking and I was like I'm never gonna write a book and I um gave up and went to this uh keynote address and mortified myself in a truly horrific way that I could not even explain within hours. Uh, and she witnessed it. And at the table with another like thousand people, she was like, oh, who was that? And what just happened? Wait, wait how did you they, mortify yourself? What, you got up and, and spoke at the keynote or what? Uh, so, well, the person at the keynote sort of called me out 
but sort of accidentally because I think she didn't maybe understand exactly what was going on. And so then I was like, oh, because I had been drinking, I was like, I should stand up and say like, oh no, I super love you. Like I'm, I've got all your books. Like I, I was literally holding her books <laughs> for her to autograph them. And I, I'd written this post about like, you know, it's like meeting Jesus or Santa Claus or a mythical hobbit. And, um, and I guess she got stuck on the mythical hobbit and that was, I, she didn't like it. I don't know. Um, and so I was like, but I love you. I said, you were like Jesus. I don't know. Are we fighting? What's going on? And, and she was like, I'm not going to respond to that. And I was like, oh Jesus, oh, we, we are, we are fighting. Oh my God. And so then I like freaked out. I had a panic attack. And as I was walking out, people were hissing at me. And I was like, are we still hissing? Is this the 1920s? What is happening? Um, and the, and by the way, like a- afterwards, she apologized and it was all a misunderstanding. It's fine. We're, we're friends now. But it was horrific at the time. And for, you know, weeks afterward, the the drama that came and I am, am anti-drama so I hid from all of it but the internet world of mommy blogs was all up in it and I was like I just want it to go away can we just talk about something else and um but that that agent was there and witnessed it and was like what just happened and the people at her table were like uh I don't know but that's Jenny Lawson she's awesome and and so they all pulled up the post so they could see what the, what the post was about. And she was like, oh, okay, it seems fine to me. And she was like, actually, this is pretty funny. And as she goes through it, she's like, oh, this is really funny. And then she called me and said, I think, I think maybe you have a book in you. And I had to admit that I had walked out on her panel. <laughs> <laughs> but she ended up being my agent and still is. And it's one of my very best friends. So sometimes from the most terrible, terrible moments, and that absolutely was one of the lowest moments in my life, and I, I really thought about quitting writing at that point, it ended up changing everything. In fact, I even thanked the person um, who was doing the keynote in my first book because it, it would not have happened. Jenny's first book, You Are Here, went to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Part of why I found my audience and my voice is because my brain is broken, but it's broken in a way that takes me to imaginatively terrible places. And I think people kind of like to hear that. They kind of like to know, oh, I'm not alone in, you know, being mortified. And um, and and that even if I think of terrible things, oh, you know what? Jenny Lawson takes it one step further. So I'm not as bad as her. So I'm, you know, <laughs> I make people feel better in that way. So so I, I think in a way sort of letting my anxiety run free and being able to write these ridiculous run-on sentence insanity things that make people go, like half of them back away and go, oh, okay, well, we'll just leave you to it. Um, and then the other half creep in and they're like, oh, my God, I thought it was just me. I was thinking that exact same thing. What the hell? I'm always worried that when I see a garbage sack on the side of the road that there's a dead body in it. Oh, my God. Every time I walk into a bathroom stall, I think, like, how many corpses are in here? Um, and and that not only does it make them feel better, but it makes me feel better. Sometimes she leans extra hard on friends to make her feel better, like when that imposter syndrome we talked about starts acting up. In fact, when I did... When I did Let's Pretend This Never Happened, um, 
when the book comes out, you get to do an audiobook. And they didn't want me to do an audiobook because I don't have a great, like, <laughs> I don't know if you can tell, I don't have a great radio voice. Um, so, so they were like, eh, I'm not sure. But I was like, yeah. I think I'm the only person that gets to tell my own story. So they said, you know what, you can try it and we'll give you a day. And if it works out, you can stay and do the rest. And if not, then we will bring in Betty White. She was just here. She'll be great. Um, and I really could not do it. And every single time that I would say a line, you could hear, you could hear my heart beating. You could hear the terror in my voice. Um, and it was just the director over and over again saying like, cut, try it again, try it again, try it again. Can you do that line again? Can you do, okay, swallow. Why don't you take a deep breath? And um, and so finally she was like, you need to, why don't you go take a little break and, um, and then we'll meet up again. And I knew she just wanted to get me out so that she could call and be like, this is not going to work. So I went into the bathroom and I texted, I'm extraordinarily lucky to have a couple of friends who are really fantastic and helpful. And one of them is Neil Gaiman. And I texted him and I was like, listen, I don't know what's happening, but I can't do this. And I know you do this and and you do it wonderfully. And I'm about to lose this opportunity, the only opportunity that I have to do this. Do you have any advice for what I can do? And he said, um, he sent me back a single line and it said, pretend you're good at it. And I took a deep breath and I walked inside and I pretended to be a person who could read my own book. And I read an entire paragraph without being interrupted by the director. And she said, that was great. I don't know what you just did, but keep doing it. And I said, I just did a lot of cocaine. Um, <laughs> and, and then I was like, no, I just got some really good advice. <laughs> Neil Gaiman is the street name for cocaine. I mean, pretty much. It, wouldn't that be a great, or like for heroin? Be like, you want, you want some Neil Gaiman? It'll make you see things. Um, but it, it, was, it was so helpful. And I still, to this day, every single reading that I do, I write on my arm, pretend you're good at it, uh, because I have to be reminded every single moment that if I pretend, then I'll have that confidence and people will believe in me. And maybe one day I actually will think that I am. And I, I actually had someone recently who came up and pulled out my arm and scratched out the word pretend. And she said, you're, you're good at it. So listeners, if you're in a bind, simply go to the restroom and text Neil Gaiman. He will <laughs> or respond. Or do heroin. <laughs> or do some heroin. <laughs> You know, sometimes Neil Gaiman writes about death. Let's use that as a segue to get back to taxidermy. I like ethical taxidermy. Like if you find roadkill or something like that, I'm like, oh, this is great. And I also really love terrible taxidermy, the kind where you look at it and you think, what was going on here? Something awful has happened, something that makes me really laugh. And so my entire office is filled with the most horrific taxidermy you could possibly imagine. And I also dress them all up in clothes. We talk about this all the time on the show. Find a treatment path that works for you. Different meds are available, various styles of therapy, or just fill your house with badly taxidermied roadkill and then feel better that way. So many options. Who's the star of the show among your bad taxidermied animals? 
Well, Rory Raccoon, who's on the cover of uh, Furiously Happy, is probably the star in that he's the most recognized. He's just this incredibly enthusiastic roadkill baby <laughs> raccoon. Um, but my personal favorite is the one that started them all, which was James Garfield, who is a, a giant boar who's like, I think he's like 150 years old and he's he's missing all his hair and he's missing teeth and he's just horrific looking, but he has this enormous smile. And I saw him at an estate sale and I think he was like $100. And I was like, I have to have him. Look how happy he is. He's so, he's so excited and he's just, oh. And my husband was like, oh, there's, there's no way in hell this is ever going to be in our house. And um, we went back the next day and the next day and I continued to say like, I just, I'm dreaming of James Garfield. And he was like, why did you name it? Don't name things you don't own. What are you doing? And then finally, he went in and uh, came back out of that house carrying an enormous 100-pound decapitated head of James Garfield like some kind of goddamn American hero. And I was, I was like, I will never leave this man. So then I have this giant, you know, horrible looking and he's shedding everywhere and the cats are chewing on his ears and he's already like just missing all sorts of pieces and he, you know he doesn't smell great and um and my husband is like I paid $90 for this I will never let you forget this so I got on on the blog and I was like look I need to make this money back because my husband will not leave me alone so I will make you a personalized Christmas card I need nine of you to say that you'll pay $10 for this personalized Christmas card that I'm gonna make with James Garfield on it and um then I'll make back the money and then he can't complain about it. And turns out like tons and tons of people wanted these Christmas cards. And so we ended up making so much money, which we gave all to charity. And um, and that that became the first uh, the first miracle of James Garfield. And then the next year we did a similar sort of thing. And then the next year we did um, another thing where People uh, helped homeless ch children get blankets and toys during Christmas. And uh, James Graffold has raised, uh, it's got to be at least a half a million dollars. I think I figured it out wow. at one point, but I, can, I think we're on like the eighth year of the James Garfield Christmas miracles. Um, <laughs> and it, But it's so ridiculous because it goes back to this like one dead animal head that I was like, I'm having an emotional connection to this dead animal. <laughs> You can see pictures of James Garfield on our Facebook page, if you dare. I'm still not sure if it represents a cure for or a symptom of depression. But why, John? Why is your show full of this woman talking about a gross, deteriorating old boarhead? Why? Why, John Moe? Why? Just because it's funny? Well, yes, mostly. But it also does fit with the theme of our program. In so many ways, it's, it seems very strange, but in so many ways, I think taxidermy is very, <laughs> it's an interesting simile with depression because quite often I feel like I'm a taxidermied animal because when I am, you know, in the pit of depression, I don't feel sad. I feel numb and I have to you know, fake my way through it, especially when I'm in front of my child because I don't want her to know that I'm upset. And so I put on this face and 
And I feel like this is not my real face, but I think I'm smiling and I'm not sure. And I'll look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, that seems believable, I guess. And I look at Rory, the taxidermied raccoon with this giant smile. And I'm like, I get it, dude. Like, I feel you. Yeah, we all have to adopt that face from time to time. Everybody is a taxidermied animal sometimes. (laughs) I bet that people send you uh, unsolicited, badly taxidermied animals. Am I right? I get so, so many. And what's, I mean, first of all, it's great because it's wonderful to have people who truly get you and are like, you know what, I'm going to pay $20 to send um, Jenny Lawson a dead animal in the mail. Um, it's also really nice because I think a lot of people probably get dead animals in the mail and it's not necessarily a compliment. Like maybe it's more <laughs> of a threat. Um I think my husband maybe looks at it as a little more of a threat, but I just think it's lovely. Although I will say there have been a couple that were not taxidermied and were just dead. And I was not a big fan of those. Yeah. Um, so so maybe, maybe like, maybe I know you, I know you sealed it up really well or you thought you did, but number one, no, you didn't. And number two, <laughs> I don't want that. Uh, <laughs> like, thank you for the thought. Duct tape isn't the same thing as taxidermy, folks. That is exactly right. (laughs) Oh, my God. Coming up, is depression a superpower? The answer may surprise you. It's yes. The answer is yes. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness. Not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression. It's a way of maybe demystifying depression a little bit, making it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious disease. The good news is that people can and do get better. They get help. That's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. Now, mental illness can be an awkward conversation, of course, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say and what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, or other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org. You can take the pledge to Make It Okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Back with Jenny Lawson, a.k.a. The Blog S, she chronicles her life for a living. And that life contains anxiety and depression. The big two, the twins, the one-two punch, goofus and goofus, the hollow notes of mental illness. How do depression and anxiety interact? Do you have them separately? Do you have them at the same time? Does, does one peak high and the other can still be there but on a lower frequency? Um, they almost are like the small dogs that I carry around with me, um, which I actually don't carry small dogs around with me because I'm not that kind of person. Um, but they are ever present and constant and yipping at my ear. But, you know, there's always like one that's pooping on the floor and the other one is like being so good. And you're like, oh, why can't you be more like your sister? And then the other one screws up and then the other one dies and then he comes back to life. Editor's note, that's not how dogs work. They're definitely very separate and very different, but I do have them at the same time. The difference to me, though, is that anxiety 
lasts for me, like it never completely goes away, but when it is absolutely paralyzing, it typically doesn't last for more than an hour at a time. Um, If it goes to, you know, full-blown anxiety attack or um, panic attack, I typically don't have a, a complete attack more than a couple of times a month now because I have learned, you know, the medication that works for me. I've been able to do a lot of cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy. Now, it's easy to think of mental illness as a burden because it is. It sucks. But some of the people I've talked to think it also kind of gives you superpowers. Here's what comedian and writer Jen Kirkman said on our show last season. I'm a snob about depression. I think we are superior. I honestly do. I think our brains are more developed. I asked Jenny Lawson what she thought of that. I think that is exactly, exactly accurate. And and also, there's something about developing this well that you get stuck in when you're in a depression where you were so low and you were so much lower than, you know, maybe a, a typical person would would be. And when you come out of that, I think in some ways it stretches you to where maybe you can feel things and appreciate things on a, a different level that maybe you wouldn't have. Not that I would say that, like, I'm so glad I have my depression because I'm absolutely not happy with it and I would like it to go away. But I definitely think that there are some some good things that that come from it. And especially, you know, with both depression and anxiety, I think it has made me a very um, empathetic person. I tend to be able to read people just from spending a couple of moments with them. And I think a lot of that is just because I'm stuck in my own head so much that I recognize all of the behaviors that anybody else can feel. And I think that's a wonderful thing, but it's also really hard because I'm very much hermity and reclusive. I'm like one step past um, introvert because... I sort of feel like I get people on me, if that makes sense. Like their emotions stick to me and then I feel like they're stuck on me and it can be really difficult. And then you're carrying, psychically carrying them around with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't, I don't, I don't go to concerts. I don't go to, I get, you know, asked to do these, these amazing things where people are like, oh my God, you've got to go to, to this thing and we're going to get you special tickets and we're going to do this and we're going to go. And I say no to almost everything. Um, and then I feel bad. I feel bad that I say no to it because everyone else would kill for the chance to do the things that I get asked to do. And I feel bad because a lot of times my family's like, oh, I'm sorry, well, what did you get invited to do? And where would we get to go? And what, that's so fantastic. And I'm like, yeah, I told them, no, I can't, I can't, I can't do it. I don't, I don't want to leave the house. I'm sorry. You want to do a thing, but you can't do it because your mind won't permit it. People with depression are nodding their heads right now because they understand it. People who've never dealt with depression are scratching their heads because they don't understand it. For me, depression is a terribly painful numbness, which is completely contradictory. But uh, I feel utterly nothing 
my face is does not feel like mine. I, I very literally get tunnel vision. In fact, I know when I'm about to go into a depression, which is, by the way, is completely chemical. I, there's, I, I have a great life. Nothing bad has ever happened to me. It is simply a chemical thing. Um, but I know the day before I'm about to go into a depression because my eyesight physically changes and I literally develop tunnel vision. So it is, it really is like I'm in a dark hole looking up. Uh, and then I just feel so uncomfortably trapped in a body that I don't want to exist in and in a life that I just want to avoid. And so I, I just try to, I do two things. One is I remind myself the same thing that I say over and over again, which is depression lies because every single time it says, you'll never come out of this again. You are absolutely worthless. Your family is better off without you. Um, and then I remind myself depression lies. Like those things, those things are lies. And even though I, I know those things are lies, it doesn't change the fact that they absolutely feel real when they're happening. So I tell myself that and then I just say, keep breathing. And I hold onto the couch and I turn on TV and I sit there with my daughter and we watch Doctor Who and I pretend to laugh and I say at least she'll have good memories of, you know, spending time with me during this time, even if I can do nothing else. And I just wait. And sometimes it can take months. Sometimes it's just a couple of days and I'm like, oh my God, thank God, thank God. <laughs> and sometimes it's months. This year I had one that lasted for, for so long. In fact, it lasted for so long that I couldn't even do the book that I was working on. And had to write another book entirely because I didn't have words. Right now I'm in a, a low level depression and I'm having a hard time trying to find the right to find the right words to get through. But when I'm at my lowest low, those words don't exist at all. Like I can't even remember some of the basic words or who I am or why I'm doing any of this. You you speak a lot about these things, about depression, about anxiety, about mental illness in general, and you know when you're heading into a depression, uh, you know when you're having a panic attack. Do you recognize that as something that isn't you and something that you have to endure and that you are going to get through to the other side, or do all those fears seem real? Like, Like it's it's a product of panic that you think something terrible is going to happen to you. But can you step to the side a little bit and say, oh, that's a result of panic. That's not a result of reality. I, I can in that, you know, as I'm driving here and thinking that I'm going to spontaneously combust, I can still move forward and go, that is not rational. I'm going to keep moving forward. But that same panic paralyzes me. And so before I came in here, I actually drove here two hours early so that I could sit in my car because I knew if I got here right when I was supposed to get in here, there's absolutely no way I would go in because I had to have time to talk myself through what are all the terrible things that could happen here? What could I accidentally say that I could mess up? How, what are the worst things that could happen? And let me walk through what will happen if I do those terrible things. How can I fix them? Um, 
So, so there are a lot of things where I'm like, well, that's just irrational. I'm just going to push through it. But it doesn't change the fact that anxiety takes up so much of my day, my time, my energy level. It is exhausting. It's like I am living six lives at the same time and none of them are doing anything. How often do you try new approaches and do you feel like you're on an approach now that's currently working for you? Well, I have tried lots of different approaches. I think behavioral and cognitive therapy um, was helpful in finding the the three tools that, you know, kind of worked for me, although you had to go through 25 of them to realize which ones actually work and which ones don't. Um, so that, that was helpful uh, with medication. Um, I took one of the, the antidepressants that instead of making you, you know, feel better, it made you suicidal. Uh, so that was a problem. Um, but they were able to recognize it and put me on a different one and I felt better, which was great, except it didn't last for very long. Uh, and I think a lot of times when a medication stops working, especially um, depression medication, you think, oh, I've failed. Like, oh, oh, I'm, I'm just broken. And you're so tired and exhausted. And the last thing that you want to do is fight for a new medication and to go to your therapist and explain it and try a new one. And what if it's dangerous? And, um, but it has always been worth it, even when it, it doesn't always work perfectly. And I think I am, you know, slowly moving forward. I actually have, I've been on enough antidepressants at this point that I qualify for, I don't remember the name of it, but it's like, it's like electroshock therapy, but it's not. ECT. That's it. Yes. Um, and my therapist is like, you totally need to do this. And I was like, that sounds awesome, except brain cancer. And she's like, I don't think it's going to give you brain cancer. I was like, well, I have anxiety, so I'm pretty sure it does. Uh, so, <laughs> so I, you know, and, and I try pretty much all the things that, that are out there. And some of them work and some of them don't. And I just realized like, my medication and my routines have to change the same way that everything else has to change in my life. Like I'm not wearing the same clothes that I wore when I was 16 and I don't like the same food that I liked when I was 20. So, you know, that's going to be a, a continuing process of trying to find what works and what doesn't and keeping my mind open to, to different things. Which brings us to thinking about the future. And here's the thing. If there was mental illness in your past and it still hangs around in your present, you know you can expect it to show up in some form going forward into the future. I asked Jenny if she's hopeful about the future. If you asked me that a month ago, I would say, no, it's always bad. Like sometimes there are good times, but it's always bad. But when I'm rational and I'm not as affected by my depression, I can see it logically. Um, and I know that not only does it not last forever, even though it feels like it is at the time, but that there are so many other people out there who are dealing with the same thing. And there are so many new medications that are coming out. Um, I have really severe rheumatoid, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and I was incredibly um, 
in so much pain for so many years. And I, every vacation ended up with me in a wheelchair and I was in the emergency room all the time. And I, I just thought like, well, that this is the beginning of the end. And, um, a doctor said, you know what, there's a new medication out there and this injection and let's try it. And I'm okay now. And I don't know that it'll last forever. And it certainly has some side effects that I'm not a big fan of, but I, n I never would have thought that in my lifetime I would go from, oh, I'm, I'm literally spending a lot of time in my wheelchair to, oh, I can run. I can go on vacation. I can move around. It doesn't hurt to stand for the first time in three months. And I remember that whenever I think about depression, when it's at its worst, I think, you know what? I never would have thought when I was in so much pain that I had to go to the emergency room that one day something would happen and it would switch and I would be okay again and I wouldn't have this constant pain. And I just think maybe that's going to happen for depression and anxiety because it could. Jenny Lawson has spent many years fighting mental illness in many forms, depression, anxiety, obsessive thoughts, all the while dealing with family stress, job stress, medications, therapy. And now that she has all that experience, that accumulated wisdom, I asked her what she wishes she knew a long time ago. And she thought back to Wall, Texas. I wish I had known when I was a kid that the journals that I would write because I didn't have any friends I would write these journals to myself. Basically, I was my own imaginary friend. And I wish I could tell myself, you know what? One day, this is all going to pay off. This is, this is how you find your voice. This is how you quiet the voices in your head and get them out onto the paper. And this is how you find your community. And you will one day not be alone anymore. Writing was how you found that voice or mental illness is how you found that voice? Well, mental illness probably is my voice, but writing is how I found how to show that voice. Um, because otherwise, it's just voices in my head screaming until I put them down on paper. In fact, there's a lot of stuff that never gets seen by anyone because I'm just like, I need to write this down or else it can't get out of my head. Um, and that's the only way that I can quiet those voices. So she'll write stuff down, some of it for mental house cleaning, but some to share with the world. She'll write about what she's going through, and then people will feel less alone, and then they'll talk about it, and that will feel good and be a good thing. The people who read me are so incredibly helpful and wonderful, and I didn't have a choice but to come forward about the fact that I had anxiety and depression because it was so much a part of me that I felt like I was creating this false narrative that wasn't true. And I didn't, I didn't expect to have so many people say, me too, but they did. And as the years went by and the stigma got a little bit less, even more came. And for a long time, um, I had this folder. I used to call it my folder of 24. And it was, it was these 24 letters that I got from people who were actively in the process of planning their suicide and decided not to, not because of anything that I had said, but because of the reaction that they saw to what I had said. So they saw me saying, this is how I feel. 
these are the terrible things that are going through my head. And they saw thousands and thousands of people saying, oh my God, I thought, I thought I was the only one. I thought it was just me. And then they realized, oh, I thought, I thought it was just me too. And so they decided to get help and they're all still alive. And I'm so lucky to be part of that community and to see that. And it reminds me whenever I'm in that dark space that I'm part of that folder of, of 24. And, you know, I, I speak about sometimes about the, the folder of 24 when I do my readings and I'm surprised at how often people will come by and as they get their book signed, they'll whisper as they walk away, I'm 25. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Kate Moose is executive producer. Our recording engineer this time around was Michael DeMarc, and our technical director was Corey Schreppel. Christina Lopez is our social media mastermind. Thanks also to Nate Toby. Our theme song is called Pagliacci. It was written and performed by our good friend Rhett Miller of the rock and roll combo known as the Old 97s. Much more about Rhett is at his website, as you might expect, rhettmiller.com. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255 or 1-800-273-TALK. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It Okay is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOK.org has information to check out for yourself or for someone else. Starting a conversation like that can be awkward, but Make It Okay has tips on what to say and what not to say and stories of hope from people who've been there. Take the pledge to Make It Okay at MakeItOkay.org. We're on Twitter at THW of D, that's T-H-W-O-F-D, or you can write to us via email, electric mail, THWOD, T-H-W-O-D, at AmericanPublicMedia.org. We're on the World Wide Web with a website, HilariousWorld.org. Visit our Facebook page to get real photographs of James Garfield, the badly taxidermy decomposing boar head, and other stuff by Jenny Lawson. And write a review for us at Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Apparently, the more buttons you push on Apple Podcasts to rate us and subscribe and write reviews, the better it is for us to reach more people, which is what we want to do. On our next episode, after her baby was born, comedian Janelle James was diagnosed with postpartum depression. But all that stuff about feeling alienated from the baby, that didn't happen. Quite the opposite, actually. I went back to work like in six weeks. And I had him in a daycare, and I just was not okay with it. <laughs> you yeah. know, I would leave work and go and at lunch and be, like, peering in the windows. Like, I was just like a fucking nutcase. You were stalking your baby. I was stalking my <laughs> And at that time, we didn't have a lot of money, so it wasn't, like, the best daycare. I just, I just felt like shit about it. I started bringing him to work and hiding him underneath my desk. <laughs> But finally, my boss was like, what's up with this fucking baby? You, you know filed I mean? your baby in your desk. <laughs> no, you know, in the, not in a file, in a <laughs> under space, B under your baby. desk. <laughs> I'm John Moe. Bye now. <laughs>